Well, the songs from uh, this morning and this afternoon were extremely appropriate. Um, those songs really did touch really well on Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 and what we're going to be observing. Um, so if you uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, we'll be uh, starting there and going through chapter 4, verse 13. So we're going to be covering two chapters, basically. Um, but it's all really on the same note. Uh, so it all just has a pretty clear, singular focus. Um, so th- this section um, really has just a very simple driving point that is looked at from a few different angles. Uh, before we get into the text, though, just to kind of overview Hebrews again, it's been a few weeks, but I think it'd be really helpful just to continuously have sunk into our minds why this letter is important and what's going on with this letter. Uh, so just as far as the relevance of why this was written, um, if you remember chapter 10, verse 32 through 36, uh, the writer points out the fact that these Christians had at one time in the beginning of their faith suffered incredible losses for the sake of their faith. Um, there were some who were imprisoned. There were some people who lost their property. It just seems like they suffered just all sorts of really severe persecution at one point. Um, but as he gets to more verse 35 and 36 of chapter 10, he notes that it's like they were getting worn out. So although they had endured well at one time in the past, that really wasn't their current condition anymore. Uh, in fact, he mentions that it seems like presently they were in very ready danger of drifting away from God. Um, so in chapter 13, verse 22, at the very end, he mentions Uh, to them to bear with this word of exhortation. So how he, in the midst of their suffering, addresses them is very interesting because he chooses to exhort them or encourage them. And just his method of doing that is very interesting because what this person does for these Christians who probably were Christians for a long time, um, they may have been Christians even for decades, um, instead of just kind of comforting them with nice words, he challenges them to have a growing and deliberate comprehension of Jesus. And he really warns them that the problem of how they were handling the suffering as an evidence of they were withdrawing from each other as like a source of relief, um, he really points out that it was very clear that they may be in danger of losing their salvation, losing touch with the value of salvation, and really disconnecting themselves from the glory of Jesus. And so he encourages them to engage their minds, to just understand more clearly who Jesus is, what what he's really done for them, what he's offered, the position that he's given his people before him. And then he finishes the letter teaching them how to live worthy of all of this. So chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 18, he really looks at Jesus' priesthood from many different angles. And the reason for that we're going to find is because he wants them to see how relevant Jesus' work as a priest is for their suffering. That it's essential to understand that Jesus is a living and active and powerful priest ministering to his people for the sake of their salvation. And his faithfulness to this is very important for them to understand. We'll see that in the section we're going to look at. But then in chapter 10, verse 19 through chapter 13, he then encourages them what to do about all of this. So it's really responding by faith to Jesus' priesthood and his work and his presence and their suffering. Um, And we'll eventually, Lord willing, uh, look more at that. 
So chapter 3, we've already looked at in chapters 1 and 2 how um, the Hebrew writer compares Jesus to angels and just tries to illustrate the idea that Jesus is more powerful than an angel. He has greater rights than angels have. He's got a greater position of authority than angels. Um, And that's important because understanding Jesus' sovereignty gives us comfort and encouragement to understand that nothing we experience is beyond his grasp or his view or his work, but that Jesus, with all of that, forsook every privilege, every right that he had, and shared in our condition so that at the end of chapter 2, he could not only free us from death, but if you look at verse 17, to become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. So we talked about at the end of chapter 2 that the problem is not that Jesus can't relate to my temptations and suffering. The problem is that I'm not connecting my temptations and suffering to his priesthood. That I'm not understanding the relevance of his work and the importance of it. So chapter 3 and 4, he's really going to encourage the audience to understand the relevance of this work that Jesus has been appointed to accomplish. Right. So the title of the lesson... Um, is finding rest in Jesus. That really is the central point of chapter 3 and chapter 4, is the relevance of finding rest in Jesus when we suffer. So he starts in verses 1 through 11, urging his audience to consider Jesus. And kind of like with angels, he makes a comparison so they can understand how to consider Jesus in a clear way. Um, And that comparison he makes is with Moses. So let's read these verses 1 through 11. Oh, I'm sorry. There's a question I wanted to ask before uh, we read this. Um, so I just wanted to put into your minds um, something that is going to be important as we progress through this section. What is God's rest? Right? Like when you think about God's rest, when you think about gaining rest, like what do you think of? And when you think of rest from suffering, like what do you think of when you think of relief or like satisfaction that gets you into a, like a, a position where you feel relieved from suffering. That's what this is going to be focusing on, is how do we find rest in Jesus? How do we redefine what we see to be rest? So chapter 3, 1 through 11. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So just a a couple of things that I think help put together how this flows. Uh, So in chapter 3, 7 through 11, He brings up a quote from Psalm 95, where David is reflecting on Israel's wandering in the wilderness, obviously. And what God had done is he had freed them from slavery. But ultimately, that freedom from slavery 
was meant to testify to a greater faithful work that God was committed to completing with that generation, right? So look back at chapter 2, verse 15, just to see the relationship and like how he's trying to pull these Old Testament verses together in a relevant way. Notice in chapter 2, verse 15, that we also have been freed from slavery, right? But for the Hebrew Christians and for us as well, it's important to understand that the initial beginning of that freedom is not the end of the story, right? It's really not the end of the work. And that's the end of chapter 2 where Jesus is a faithful high priest to continue to perfect us and sanctify us um, through his ministry. So he's trying to get the audience to consider Jesus. And that's really going to be, again, the the thread that we're going to be looking at. How do we find rest in Jesus and see him in our suffering in a way that draws us closer to him? So for one, um, look at verse one. So he says we're partakers of a heavenly calling. Um, I don't know if you've thought much about this concept of calling. Um, that's used in the world in a really unbiblical way. Um, usually people will talk about God calling them to something as a way of referring to their feelings. Like God's calling you to this job, or he's calling me here, or he's calling me to do this. And like really what they mean is they have a feeling that God is like trying to guide them somewhere, but they're just basing that on their feelings. Um, the biblical idea of a calling is something that God has actually defined in his word. It's ultimately, biblically, it's the idea that we're actually being called out of one condition and we're being called into another condition entirely, right? And the calling here is not just generic. It's that God has called us to a heavenly calling. So God is trying to call us upward and he's trying to draw us to see our need for that calling and the progression of the work of that calling is something that... um, we need to seek and draw near to him for. So he's an apostle, meaning just that he's sent from God for that purpose, as Moses was sent from God's uh, presence to the people. Um, And he's the high priest of our confession as well, um, giving mercy and grace and intercession uh, so that we can have confidence to continue on faithfully as he's faithful to us. So he makes this comparison to Moses. And I think the idea just how this works together is in verse 5, Moses was faithful in everything as a servant for God's house in his time. And when you get into 7 through 11, the generation that came out of Egypt, they did not honor Moses' faithfulness. They didn't honor Moses, his instruction. They didn't honor God's presence with Moses. They didn't honor what, what God was trying to do through Moses' leadership with the people. And so they were punished. You remember in chapter 2, that those who didn't follow the words spoken through angels were punished. And the point is, since they were punished for the words spoken through angels, verse 1, because of that, we should pay even more close attention to what we've heard because the glory of what we've heard so far surpasses that word spoken through angels, right? So because Moses was worthy of honor and because God held that generation accountable to Moses' leadership, The idea is the only reason why Moses had any honor, why that was of any significance, why God cared about that, is because Moses was leading the people in a way that reflected the things that now we have fully received. So the idea is if we understand what Moses was doing, God's purpose in that, if we've seen Jesus and seen the work of Jesus, then in a sense we're being held to a greater accountability then to what we've received compared to what they had in their day. Uh, So chapter 6, 
not chapter 6, sorry, verse 6, um, mentions that we need to hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. Um, so the idea of what we've confessed of Jesus, we have to hold fast to the beginning of that. He'll say again in verse 14, um, firmly and consistently and faithfully, right? Um, one, one last thing. Um, leading into the discussion that's about to be made about rest, when he's bringing up Psalm 95, the people did not believe ultimately that God was seeking to faithfully save them and deliver them, right? They didn't change their view of their needs as they came out of Egypt. They didn't change their view of their rest when they came out of Egypt. Do you remember oftentimes when they were hit to a point where they had some need that they didn't feel like God was fulfilling? What was their solution to that? So oftentimes they would say, we need to go back to Egypt. You know, we had leeks and we had food in Egypt. We had bread in like an unlimited quantity in Egypt. So they were willing to withdraw themselves back to Egypt because they felt like in their suffering, God was not able to satisfy them. That God was not going to faithfully continue this work that had a greater purpose than just bringing them out of Egyptian bondage, right? So because they weren't willing to see how God had a greater purpose than just what happened at the beginning, because they were unwilling to let their desires, their hearts be changed, God could not dwell with them in fellowship and they were um, laid low in the wilderness in, wilderness in verse 11. So that leads us into chapter 3, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 2. And I think he gets into more specifics about what we need to do about our understanding of these things. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is called or still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they heard him or when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was, uni- it was not united by faith in those who heard. I think something that the writer is trying to illustrate to the audience is being able to very clearly relate to the dangers that the Israelites experienced in the wilderness. Just try to remember for a moment when they actually went into the promised land to spy it out. You had 12 spies, right? Ten of those spies... They saw the same thing that Caleb and Joshua saw, right? They came back. They acknowledged that it was a good land. They acknowledged it was exactly what God said it was. However, the problem is that the people were, they were large. Their cities were fortified. And so because of that, 10 of the 12 spies, do you remember what they did? They discouraged the people, right? And now I think a key thing is what did Caleb and Joshua do when the spies, the ten spies gave that bad report, what did the two spies do in response? 
They tried to encourage the people. And they didn't listen. And they turned against Moses. And I think a similarity here of how that serves as a type, God's rest always requires encouragement among the people seeking it. God's rest always has been designed to require diligent and careful encouragement for the purpose of bringing the people in who are aware of their need for that kind of encouragement. Because they were, they were right that the people in the land were large. They were right that they were fortified. And it was very clear that in terms of physical power, that they were actually not able of their own strength to overcome them if they went into the land. But that was exactly the point, right? And so the Hebrews were suffering just as we do. And God isolated Israel in a place where it was very evident to them that they had one goal in the wilderness, just one, and that was to get into the promised land, right? And what the Hebrew writer is trying to help us to understand is ultimately, because of who Jesus is, because of what's been revealed in Jesus, we may suffer in various ways, that are easy to disassociate with the end goal of salvation, but all of our suffering is ultimately connected with the work of inheriting the end goal of our salvation. It's just a matter of if we understand the the focus that God has on bringing us to a completed position in that regard. We'll look at some just very quick ways that this is seen at the end of the letter in chapter 12. But the idea is God is faithful in his intention of bringing us to that completed end. It's just a matter of if we see truly how badly we need to fixate ourselves on that same end goal. It's the same thing as going back to the theme verse. The whole goal of this letter is to fixate our eyes on Jesus, to understand that he is our end goal. We may suffer in various ways again that Uh, whether it's work-related, financially related, whether it's relationships, just if it's our health, whatever it is, we may in our minds, because of just not understanding our faith and our salvation with enough comprehension like the Hebrews, we may need at times encouragement to realize that whatever these things are that we're suffering, we need to connect it back to our end goal of eternal salvation. Because everything we experience in terms of suffering and for testing always leads us nearer to our confidence we have in God, right? So that leads us back to verse 12. This is the primary exhortation of this whole lesson. It's one of my favorite verses. You've heard me in sermons bring this up multiple times. But I really believe that this is a life-changing and heart-changing verse if it'll be applied. Um, Just that if I understand the importance of my salvation, the importance of the salvation of others around me, that will lead me to want to be an encouragement to others. And not just an ambiguous kind of social encouragement, but to deliberately seek to encourage others for the sake of our salvation. That's ultimately what the point is here. That this rest that we're seeking and finding in Jesus, it's a rest for those who, again, they see their need for the spiritual salvation, for sanctification from sin. If you go back to chapter 1, one of the things he's going to get into in the latter part of chapter 4, I think relates back to chapter 1, verse 3. So he mentions that we have to hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Look at verse 3, and what did Jesus do to sit down? This idea of Jesus inheriting his rest. 
What did he do? He made purification for sins. God holds fast to that beginning purpose firm until the end. That what God does at the very beginning is exactly what he is continuing to pursue firmly, faithfully, resolutely until the end. We're going to see that point hit on just nearly every chapter of Hebrews from this point forward is that God is seeking one purpose and our job by faith is to unite ourselves progressively more and more with that purpose. Another way that this connects back to Israel, um, in Exodus 15, Israel sings this like hymn together. Um, I think it's the first song in the entire Bible, the first psalm. And they acknowledge a lot of magnificent things about God. They, they mention that God is guiding them by his loving kindness, that he overthrows their enemies, that he's jealous for them to fulfill his purpose, that he's their savior. They acknowledge these things, but they fail to see that God is willing and is acting on those same truths that they themselves confessed. So, verse 14, again, how we relate to that is, what are we confessing when we're baptized? When we confess Jesus is Lord, that God raised him from the dead. We're confessing that Jesus is our personal Savior. That he's saving us from the condition of our sin. That he's bringing us into an entirely new condition. That he loves us with a love that exceeds our comprehension and understanding. That we are being saved because God has a mission and a purpose that our sins have made us ignorant of. So there's all of these things that are held in just the beginning confession of our salvation. That the goal is to have a continuing and growing comprehension of the inferences and implications of these beginning truths. Um, Another, uh, the second uh, part of that confession that Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is God, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is the Son of God, then he is able to powerfully give me aid as a Savior in every single phase of my faith and every difficulty I face, right? Those two truths that Jesus is my Savior, that he loves me with an unfathomable love, that he is a king and that he loves me in a faithful way beyond my comprehension. That's chapter 1 through chapter 10, verse 18. The Hebrew writer is just trying to picture these truths in a broader picture so that they're encouraged in ways they haven't been before by seeing these things in ways that they haven't, uh, haven't seen them in before. Um, so the problem with Israel in the wilderness, again, before we continue to read, is that they did not believe that God's love for them continued to be the primary goal of every progressing need they had as they continued in the wilderness. So chapter 4, starting in verse 3. We're going to read through verse 13. So here's where we consider God's rest in light of all of these things. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested from the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, uh, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, He would not have spoken of another day after that. 
So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has also himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Just really quick, it's just amazing the inferences the Hebrew writer makes from the Old Testament. Just the, the whole letter, he just draws out these incredible applications from just like these verses he draws out of the Old Testament. Um, so, for instance, in verse 3 and 4, he infers that God's works were finished from the foundation of the world because it says that God rested from all his works from the seventh day. In verse 5, I think he makes an important implication, they shall not enter my rest. And one of the broader points is that God's rest is not defined by us. It also does not belong to us. So we have to be led to discover God's rest and actually change our perception of rest. Um, In verse 7, he makes an inference from the inference that David makes. So I think David, understanding God's faithfulness, understanding God's ongoing work, understanding God's activity, that because of the nature of God's faithfulness, because of his ongoing plan, because he's continuing to serve in that initial purpose, he understands that every single day there needs to be a faithful, continuing renewal on our part of the same ongoing, persistent purpose that God is continuing on his part, right? And so the Hebrew writer is making these grand inferences uh, that just permeate these awesome applications So I think he's just trying to fill the audience's mind with seeing just how much there is to see and to understand of God that we can be putting into our minds to give us just such a sense of reverence and encouragement. So with that, one other point before we look more at the text progressively. Notice in verse 11, he says, let us be diligent to enter that rest that no one will fall. Uh, Look back at verse 1. Therefore, let us fear, full a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Uh, look back at verse um, 13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, I just think it's worth noting that the Hebrew writer is trying to make individual applications from this. And not just for the individual listening, but for the individual to be considering the others around them and making application toward those individuals around them, right? So I think it's important as we're reading this that the exhortation is that we consider one another, that we consider, as he'll say in chapter 10, how to actively stir up both love and good works when we see the needs that each other have and the importance of those needs, So trying to get back to verse 3 and make some progressive points of application. He's making a lot out of this idea of God's rest continuing, um, that it actually wasn't just getting into Canaan, because obviously when they got into Canaan, David lived a long time after that and was still talking about this rest that is still remaining. Um, So his point is that there's something more to this rest than just the seventh day or 
just getting into Canaan land. There's something much more that God by inference was seeking to give to people. And I think the key thing is threaded throughout the context. Um, Verse 4. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Um, In verse 10. The one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works as God did from his. So it mentions that God has rested from all his works, but has God continued working since the seventh day? Has God continued doing big things, great things, evident things, right? I mean, obviously he has, right? Even the Exodus and the wilderness wandering that's even being quoted is, Obviously, God was working. Um, But I think the key thing is, what was the nature of that work? What was God doing? Do you remember Jesus in his ministry on Sabbath days? Was Jesus working on Sabbath days? Right. Well, and yes, he was. And the Pharisees, when they would see Jesus working, what did they think he was doing? They thought he was violating the Sabbath as he was working. But I think if we really understand the nature of Jesus' work, um, when we understand the nature of his work, what he was giving, what he was doing, um, we're able to understand that Jesus really wasn't violating the Sabbath. He was actually fulfilling the Sabbath and giving rest, just as I think this text is really pointing to. That God's works have always been from one single intention, and that's to bring others into his rest. Everything that God does is motivated by serving for the purpose of salvation. God never betrays that purpose. He never has betrayed that purpose. Back in verse um, 9, when it says that uh, the fathers tested him when they saw his works, the idea that God working for their salvation was not satisfying, wasn't something that they saw as a source of rest. So they were tempting God, as we talked about this morning, to be someone else or do something else that betrayed that purpose. But God never in all the history of all that he's been tempted with, with all the times that he's worked with his people, has never betrayed that purpose. Think about Jesus' ministry. All the miracles that he did, all of his teaching, everywhere that he went, everything Jesus did was motivated by one single purpose. Working for the sake of salvation. And I think the idea of this passage is ultimately that rest is in connecting with Jesus' priesthood, that Jesus is still working for the sake of that rest. And that back in verse 12, when we work, when we encourage each other, when we devote ourselves to bearing one another's burdens, to encouraging each other for the sake of that same salvation, that is where we find rest. Just like the Israelites on the border of Canaan were right on the border of that place of rest. And they did not inherit it because they did not properly encourage each other to enter into that rest. They did not serve one another for the purpose of that rest. And they weren't willing to listen to the word of exhortation that was to change their hearts and see things differently, just as chapter 13, 22 exhorts to the Christians who are reading this letter. Right. So I think that helps make a lot clearer sense, if that makes sense, of some of the things that are written um, that seem kind of strange. The idea of God uh, resting from his works, verse 10, us resting from our works as God did from his. 
The idea is all that we do is no longer motivated from any kind of self-satisfaction, but all that we do, again, just to be repetitious with it, all for the sake of salvation for others. Um, So how this relates to verses 12 and 13, it can kind of seem like this is some random exhortation kind of thrown into the middle of all of this discussion. And I really don't think it is. I think it's, it's a very primary uh, point of application that uh, the writer is making. What do we think about the command to encourage each other every day? What does that reveal about our hearts, right? Throughout scripture, and I mean from the very beginning, this point about encouraging each other, laboring, sacrificing, and suffering to encourage one another and seeing that as our way of connecting with God and his rest, that literally is like the central, ultimate application that God is giving us in his word. It's the central application of Jesus' ministry. Remember Jesus saying in Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Serving for the sake of salvation. It is the primary, singular, highest application in all of God's word. So when I'm confronted with that, verse 12, the word of God, not just in some generic way reading it, but when I'm confronted with that ultimate application, what does that expose about my view of God's rest? Do I actually want that rest? The Israelites proved that they didn't because they were unwilling to encourage and be encouraged by what would lead them into that place, right? So when I hear that exhortation, what does that expose about my view of God? Do I see him as my source of rest? Do I see God as the source of relief of my suffering? Do I see his priesthood as the answer to my needs in my suffering? And am I allowing God to continuously expose the depth of my need for his work? And am I responding to that need in the way that we'll be encouraged in this very letter to respond? Um, I think another point on the other side of that same thought, that God isn't just trying to expose my motives and intentions in a way to refine in that sense, but the Hebrew writer is working to build a very grand and almost new picture of Jesus for the audience. And I think the beauty of this epistle, if we will seek God's rest, if we'll see it as an attractive and drawing thing, if we will seek to encourage one another to point people to Jesus, what God will do is he will progressively through suffering and through striving, he will build an image of Jesus that is not just generic intellectual knowledge. He will help us to see Jesus in a way that anchors us in our hope and brings us joy and peace that we could not have unless we clung to him with greater resolution and greater faith. So turn to chapter 12. I actually want to show you how this is actually a point that the Hebrew writer makes later without using the word rest. If you look at chapter 12, verse 11, I think the ultimate idea of rest is peace. I, and I think we all, Ultimately, we're seeking peace in our lives. We want peace. Hebrews chapter 12. He's making kind of a bigger point about fathers disciplining their children. God scourges his son. So the idea is like when we suffer, it's not just aimless and purposeless. Like God is, he's focused again on this one mission. Well, look at chapter 12, verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Growing in righteousness, applying righteousness, even in the midst of suffering, still being focused on righteousness and applying God's word, that yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is God's rest. And to those who don't believe, they will not be obedient. Because if I don't see God as bringing me rest through his commandments, it'll be just like the Israelites who disobeyed what God was commanding them because they did not believe, right? So because they didn't see God as continuing his salvation faithfully in the midst of that trial, they were unwilling to continue on and they suffered and were brought low in the wilderness for it, right? So ultimately, the Hebrew writer is trying to get us to see that God is the true source of rest. Ultimately, our idea of rest is misconstrued. It's misapplied. I view rest as doing nothing, right? Selfishly indulging in just my desires, using my time for myself. That's not God's view of rest. God's view of rest, again, to be redundant very deliberately, to serve others for the sake of of salvation. That's always been God's purpose. He's never betrayed that purpose. And what we are being invited into in the Hebrew letter is to see how God is continuing to serve us for that purpose and encouraging us to continue to serve others for that same purpose as well. So uh, Psalm 139 and we'll end the lesson. I just want to show you how David, who is the one who wrote Psalm 95, um, said things in Psalm 139 that I think help think through this idea with just a little bit more of a specific application with the last verses we looked at. Uh, Just remember this idea of God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing thoughts and motives, separating the bone and the marrow. Um, Everything's open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Psalm 139 is a psalm where David, I think, expresses those same ideas, but I think in a way that's not frightening, but is meant to be very encouraging. Psalm 139, 1 through 3. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. So he's talking about how God, he knows him in just such a deep, intimate, and incredible way. And he finds encouragement in this. Look at chapter 139 still. The last two verses, 23 and 24, look at the final words of David in the psalm as he reflects on how God and his words pierce his thoughts. He knows his intentions. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. That is the point of everything we've read. That God's everlasting way is our place of rest, the activity of this way. And God is trying to refine us to draw out of our hearts any hurtful way. If there's anything that can be done for anyone here this afternoon, if there's any needs, any confession, um, now is the time to say these things and bring them up as we stand and sing Invitation Song.